Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode three of Latin on the Fleming Foundation. My guest for these episodes is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Well, we're going to move forward today in our study of Latin. What do you have for us? Well, today we're going to talk uh, about uh, some general questions. We're going to talk about, uh, as always with this show, we're not trying to uh, make this a substitute for a standard Latin course, either a classroom or an online class, but rather to sketch out some of the broad problems in studying Latin and to uh, give a little enlightenment. So today we're going to begin with a very familiar Latin text, at least familiar to, uh, to Christians, and that is the Lord's Prayer in the form uh, that we know it from uh, St. Jerome's Latin version. Otherwise, most many Catholics used to call it simply the Paternoster, uh, which are the first two words of the prayer, our Father. Stephen, if you would like to uh, recite this for us, I'm sure you don't need a text uh, and uh, we can talk about it. No, but 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 after last time, I'm going to be very thoughtful about my accents uh, because I, I remember <laughs> that I, I didn't quite get that right last time. Um, Pater noster quis in chilis sanctificetur nomen tuum adveniat regnum tuum fiat voluntas tua sicut in celo in terra panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie et dimite nobis debita nostra Sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos Very good. No, no, no major problems with that. The uh, <clears throat> first, we could obviously spend uh, twenty shows just talking about what one could learn uh, from studying. The, the, the Lord's Prayer, but I want to concentrate on just one or two aspects of this. First of all, what is a prayer? I mean, if you, um, I've, I've asked this question a lot of times. So if, for example, I've, uh, similarly, I've asked, um, I've asked people what, what a church service, why, why do we go to church? And usually the answer is um, we want to get in touch with God, we want to uh, purify our minds, and of course, the only real answer is we go uh, to praise and serve God. A prayer, we think of it as focusing our mind sort of uh, in Buddhist terms, or to adopt a, uh, a humble or contrite or grateful spirit. But all of this is true, but it's sort of irrelevant. The, uh, a prayer, as we can tell from the English word to pray, comes from a Latin verb, precari, which means to ask for or beseech. We get uh, Italian prego, German bitte. These are very common words in European languages. It's just the way you say please. You can't talk to a German for 30 seconds without him saying bitte, bitte, bitte. And similarly, in Italian, the most common word is prego, which uh, is, from the, of course, from the same verb, uh, same Latin verb. So a prayer <coughs> is... An, as a request, and the Latin for the Lord's Prayer, of course, the Oratio Dominica, the the prayer of the the prayer pertaining to the Lord, or the prayer our Lord gave us, is from uh, another simple verb, orare, which means 
to ask somebody for something. It's just a, a regular, ordinary word. I have this sort of uh, theory, which maybe, which uh, I know some theologians don't like, which is that we should, in trying to grapple with the meaning of these things, it's a good idea to try to look at the simple root meanings, the everyday meanings of these words, before we adopt a more precise theological meaning. So we got all this clear. So a prayer is a request. And the Pater Noster gives us a model prayer. That is, uh, Christ tells us, pray this way. This is how you ask God for the things you want. and Or it's better to ask for the things you need. Uh, later on in this program, we're going to take up the Latin grammar of how you try to get people to do what you want. But for now, uh, I just want to look at the text very briefly. In most respects, it's a literal reading of the Greek text of the New Testament. There's one big problem. What, what is the big problem, Stephen, in the Lord's Prayer in, in, the, in the Latin version and in trying to make sense of it? It's the most, it's the most baffling line in all of Scripture. Um. Well, I mean, lead us. Are, are you are you asking me as a bachelor? Just not lead us not into temptation. No, I'm asking for how come? How come? Why do we get this day our daily bread? Isn't that redundant? I mean, panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie. Um This is this is a redundancy. If you give us our daily bread, or gi- give us bread today. In fact, mm. this is just a little sidelight. The, the, uh, the Latin here, quotidianum, is a guess at what it means. And uh, my, own, my own view is that whatever it means, and it is not, in Greek it is not daily. It is one of the strangest things that in, in the history of the church, in the history of all Christianity, that, that, this, that this very simple prayer has a word in it that's virtually unattested uh, in, in Greek before. And the word in, uh, the Greek word means something like uh, th- that which is over and above, from a verb to, to mean to be in abundance or to be. So hence you have theologians who translate it as super substantial. Now, I just have this feeling that uh, preaching in, in, in the Holy Land in the first century A.D. Uh, to uh, farmers and fishermen, they did not use a technical theological term, which had yet <laughs> had no meaning. But so uh, it is... Super substantial bread doesn't really work out, right? No. I have, uh, I think uh, it, it's possible, and it comes from a, a, another verb, which means to, to visit, so that give us this day the bread that visits us, that comes to us. This would, uh, that's because I think I, many theologians, many church fathers thought that uh, the bread of communion is anticipated in the manna that comes to the Jews in the Exodus. And I think it's clear that, that uh, we're not being told to ask for our food, but for spiritual food. That is, give, that is he's anticipating long in advance, well, not that long. His ministry isn't that long. But he's anticipating uh, this, uh, this, the, uh, 
the Last Supper and the service of communion. But <clears throat> let's uh, let's drop all that. So, et nenos inducas in tentationem, and don't lead us not into temptation. What does that mean? Most people. Uh, and, I, and by most people, I mean every sermon I've ever heard on this subject and everything I've seen written on it in the past couple of hundred years, um, they misunderstand the word temptation. In the Latin is translating a Greek word which means to make a trial of, to make an experiment of. Um, and it has nothing to do with, you know, the kind of... Uh, country music attitude you don't i'm a diabetic don't 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 bring me past the candy store i'm a married man don't let me fall in love with this woman at standing at the bar next to me it has that that would be highly inappropriate and highly blasphemous uh, because this same we don't we know that uh, of course the temptation is what uh, our lord was led to in the desert and and doctor i mean the, the Greek word you're talking about is that pirasmon is that the Yes. Is that the, the word you're okay? Exactly. I just want to make sure I'm, exactly. follow, I'm following along. Okay. So we um, so this 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 notion of temptation is to put to the test, and I, the image I like is um, the English word assay. You go into the off into the chemist's office and you say, I have this uh, metal ore, and I think it's gold. Can you tell me what it is? And the chemist or the assay uh, expert will say, no, it's not gold, it's fool, it's iron pyrite, fool's gold, or it's true gold. Mm -hmm. This is what Satan was trying to find out. He was trying to find out who Jesus was. He wasn't, try he wasn't trying necessarily, no, of course, he may have thought he was enticing him, but that's not the point there. The point is not entrapment or enticement, but the point is to, to find out. And, of course, all of Jesus' answers help to indicate to us later people, to anybody who heard the story, uh, what he is. But we'll, we'll, we won't go into that. We'll save that for another time. The, uh, let's, uh, let's get on to the subject of, how to, of pedagogy, how, how we teach Latin. The, um, every, uh, very often I'm asked the question, how to go about studying Latin, especially how to go about reading it. Should we read four or five lines a day for an hour, hour and a half, concentrating on studying the grammar and getting our translation perfect? Or should we read longer passages rapidly for their basic sense? Which, which, which was your method, Stephen, as a student and, uh, and today? Do you, do you read word by word, pondering each word, or, or sort of skim it? Uh, I suppose when I was a first, second year Latin student, I was much more focused on trying to make sure I looked at every word. But, you know, third year Latin and now when I so my text of choices, I use the I read the New Testament in Latin and that there I have an unfair advantage because I'm I'm very familiar with the text. So it's easier for me to, to read it in a more flowing sensibility. And it's more beautiful to hear it. So it's so spare in the way that it expresses itself. It's easier for me to, to read it that way. So it's, I, it's not an academic text. If I'm reading Solace or, or Ovid, I probably slow down a bit just because I'm maybe a bit intimidated than I am with the New Testament. 
the um, that that is a problem, by the way. I remember in my first year Greek course where the uh, the, the our professor asked uh, one of the students to read the uh, the the famous passage from uh, the Gospel according to Saint Luke on the on the birth of Christ. And the student was, uh, he was going off to the uh, seminary next year, and he started reciting, there went out in those days a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Well, our our professor was a real wise guy, and he closed his eyes, and he got a dreamy look in his face, and he said, beautiful, Mr. Roberts, absolutely beautiful. He said, the, the authorized version of the New Testament is one of the masterpieces of the English language and literature. <laughs> Perhaps you'd like to translate the passage now. <laughs> yeah, you wonder where from. We get all these habits from, from our our teachers. The thing is, you have to you have to do it both ways. You have to have you have to have some intense study, but you also have to learn how to read rapidly. Otherwise, by the time uh, you uh, shuffle off this mortal coil, you're going to have read twenty pages of Latin. I. Uh, I remember uh, talk when I was going off to my first job. Uh, my uh, one of my Latin professor was a very very great scholar, uh, T. R. S. Broughton, told me that the professor at the university where, that I was going to, that is Miami University of Ohio, that Old Montgomery, he said he would he would send out these students, and they were very good, uh, but they could only do about five lines a day, and when you go to graduate school, you've got to do five to ten pages a day. So you do have to learn how to move a, a bit more rapidly. So what I'm suggesting with this long-winded, roundabout way of saying it, what I'm suggesting is that, uh, as, as you did when you were a student, Steve, when you begin, you, you really are concentrating word by word, but then you get to the point that this is awfully tedious. And you, is this what I'm doing? I'm going to spend, I'm learning Latin so that I can look, I can parse every uh, every single phrase and by the way um, at the end of the broadcast we'll talk about how the word pars is so woefully uh, misused since the days of uh, Bill Clinton okay well, let's go on to the subject of nouns regular listeners will will see that we um, I'm trying to follow a general pattern start with interpreting us talk about some problems in scriptural passages then go on to talk about how to teach Latin, and then go on to nouns, and then verbs, and then uh, some more general considerations about uh, Latin. Last week we talked about the first declension, the A declension. This week I want to talk about the second declension, which is the O declension. My students would always say, why do you call it the O declension? Most uh, Most of the words in it most of the forms have a U in it, not an O in it. Why don't you um, decline amicus for us, Stephen, just so that we get a feeling uh, of the uh, for what the second declension is? All right, amicus, amici, amico, amicum, amico, amici, amicorum, amicis, amicos, amicis. Yes, you fell into it again. <laughs> that the sing song Saturday. I was being so deliberate there, and I thought I'm going to catch it this time. I'm not going to do it. And I did until it. you get to the plural. And every 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 student I've ever had, and my and my own dear wife uh, makes exactly the same mistake. Of course, it's amici or amici, amicorum, 
amikis, amikos, amikis. But it's, it's almost inevitable. All my students have always done it. Okay, the, the reason it's the O declension is because originally, you know, in sort of proto-Latin, it would have been amikos, O-S, as it is in Greek. But that unaccented O, the short O, uh, it was weakened in pronunciation until it became something like an U. Uh. And so that's why it's amicus amici or amicus amici. Uh, we see the O, of course, in the ablative singular, amico, and in the genitive plural, amicorum. Those of the uh, second declension uh, are te most of them are either masculine or neuter. Now, we've talked earlier about uh, gender, and, of course, m male names are masculine and male creatures are masculine, but it's a grammatical notion. It's a way of uh, dividing the world up. I don't know what in the postmodern period, I mean, do you think that um, we'll be able to change the gender of nouns as easily as well? Well, we're probably not being sensitive by calling it neuter in the first place, uh, Dr. Fleming. We probably should be calling them transgender, right? Exactly. So they're not really neuter. Maybe, you know, if we're writing about uh, Bruce Caitlin Jenner, for example, <laughs> in Latin, I guess we would, we, would, we would have to refer to, use the neuter gender and refer to it as it rather than he or she. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, maybe we should pass on. Um, there, uh, there are, of course, pro the letter R uh, presents a problem uh, everywhere in Latin. I think uh, we've talked before about the problem of uh, R coming between two vowels in, for example, a verb. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, S between two vowels, excuse me. S become, between two vowels becomes an R uh, in, in, in verb forms and in noun forms, and R is sort of slippery. So we have, we have uh, for example, an adjective like free, liber, liber, libera, libero. But right beside that, we have the, the adjective for pretty, pulcher, pulcra, pulcrum, in which the E only turns up in the uh, masculine singular form. We also have the verb, uh, the, 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 the noun, librum, book, librum li, uh, libri. But I mean, so you, uh, the, you have these, uh, this, this, this problem, that the, e, the uh, e dropping out, and this is why when you memorize an adjective, you have to memorize all three genders. You don't memorize it just as uh, liber, but liber, libera, liberum, and you don't, and with nouns, you have to memorize the nominative and genitive because without the, uh, without memorizing the genitive, you don't know really if that, if the, uh, if the E is retained. Now, the, uh, one of the things that I want to emphasize strongly is when Stephen re recited the paradigm, that is amicus amici, he did it in the normal way in which we have been learning things since the time of the Greeks, that is nominative, genitive, dative, accusative, ablative, or in languages that have an instrumental, it goes in there. But modern uh, grammar books, many of them, uh, like, it's very, it's, I think this started in the Slavic languages, and it's certainly, I find, in grammars of modern Greek, 
and increasingly ancient Greek and Latin, they like to put nominative and accusative together because uh, they're often the same form. And as a res- and this is supposed to be uh, an advantage because that way you have the two similar forms coming together. I don't think it's an advantage at all. It tends to encourage people to think that uh, somehow the nominative and genitive are always going to be the same, and in fact that's only in a minority of cases, so it's stupid. But worse, it means that people studying Latin or Greek today are cut off from uh, traditions that go back thousands of years. Why not just learn it the way everybody else has learned it? It's not as if we know more about how to teach Latin today. If we did, then more people would know it. All right, let's talk about the formation a little bit. In uh, in uh, Latin, the genitive singular forms uh, in the first. I'm sorry, Doctor Fleming. I, could I could I just pause? I wanted to ask you about because you had mentioned librum libri. Could we just talk briefly about liberi, the the word for children? Because I think it's it's fascinating that word itself, how it's closely related to free, and right next yeah. to that we have a word for children, and it it's only in the plural. So can you just speak to that briefly? Sorry, I meant to ask you about that before we moved on. Children are uh, children. It, it is from the word for free, uh, and the, the the point about children is that they are as dependent on their father's will, uh, and on their in fact their existence depends on their father's willingness to uh, let them live, uh, because he has the power of life and death over his wife and children and grandchildren if in, in uh, under certain circumstances. And so, their posi- on the one hand, their position in the household is no different than that of a slave. On the other hand, they are actually free. They're not, they're not slaves, and they, they have to be treated with dignity and compassion and humanity. And so, the word free means they are the free, that is, non-servile dependents of the family. And so, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strange word, because children are, um, on the one hand, uh, completely unfree, that is, they depend for their very existence in any society on uh, the willingness of parents to provide food and shelter and protection to them. But uh, on the other hand, they are capable of freedom and that they, will, they, are, they are part of uh, members of a free society. So it, it is funny. You know, right now <clears throat> there's a big argument over poor Hillary Clinton that was out there saying, well, unborn children don't have constitutional rights. And um, people are legitimately angry with her because, obviously, that's an excuse for murdering unborn children. But in Roman law, and by the way, in Anglo-American law, until, uh, until very recently, children did not have rights, born or unborn. It was the obligation of the parent to take care of the child, but the child had, couldn't sue in court unless uh, he was, uh, had no parents or had a guardian appointed to him who would uh, would enter the suit himself. So, in fact... Well, unless you uh, have guardians like Demosthenes had guardians. Yeah. The wrong type of <laughs> yes, that, that certainly happens, and then you have to sue your guardian if you can. But oddly enough, Hillary is more right on this. Uh, of course, she has an evil will and an evil uh, attitude toward children, but as for the constitutional question, it's not just a question of today, you know, because of Roe versus Wade, but rather it's a, it's a tradition 
that goes back to the ancient Greeks and Romans and Jews. Children born or unborn do not have, possess civil rights. And this, this, is, uh, this really disturbs uh, people who are uh, quite understandably upset about uh, parents who would put their own child to death. But the, the, it, you, it could lead you to the understanding that the proper way to stop this evil is not so much by giving children constitutional rights, which then can be used against their parents, but the important thing is to re-empower parents and, and, make, and persuade them to accept this very important responsibility. That's enough. And so, no, and that's fine. And, and as a reminder, Dr. Fleming reminds us, nominative, genitive. So since this noun is always in the plural, it's liberi liberorum. And that's how you exactly. remember that. Exactly. Sorry. So to so move on, Dr. Fleming, you wanted to talk about the formation. You know, the, um, there, the, the, the genitive is formed in different, uh, in different declensions in different ways. In the first and second declension, the key is the the I vowel, which uh, the of course puel puelai a e was originally an uh, uh, an a s, and in uh, in and uh, which then gets reformed on uh, on the analogy with the masculine form, uh, like for example amicus amici. The uh, I don't want to get too technical in this. The, um, the, the feminine uh, plural, the, uh, like for puella, was originally pu- puellasum, but what do we know about S between two vowels? That it can't stand, so it has to become puellarum. The original masculine second declension genitive plural was simply um, um. Uh, but because, you know, you have all these formulas, puellorum, Puellarumque, uh, you know, boy of boys and girls. So uh, it, the, the 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 masculine form ended up inserting the the or into it uh, by analogy with the feminine. Uh, but you know, it's one of the nice things about Latin is that legal and religious language is extremely conservative. And even even in uh, even in American legal and religious circles, until recently. Uh, traditional languages, including foreign languages, uh, uh, were, were 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 held onto. So, too, in Latin, the genitive plural for gods is is typically in poetry deum rather than deorum. So you do see the ancient form, and that's something you have to watch out for. Yeah, when you're translating Latin poetry, you'll often come across the older form. Um, teachers will sometimes say, oh, well, this is just a shortened version. No, it's deum is the original version. I should say also that we talked, uh, when I was talking about that most nouns are uh, of the second declension are either masculine or neuter, there are feminine nouns of two types. And this is something which your first or second year Latin book usually won't talk about. One are city names, and uh, because cities uh, are, are by their nature feminine. And the other are uh, names of many trees uh, are feminine in gender, but their second declension nouns ending in U.S. So that's, that's something to watch out for, as, especially as you move on in Latin. 
Now, if you ask a, a Latin teacher or a first or second year Latin student, what is the genitive case used for? The answer is, oh, it's the case that shows possession. It is true that the genitive case shows possession, but uh, it is misleading. The, uh, it's more accurate to say the genitive case is used to link one noun to another. Now, we do this in English by noun clusters, like we say French teacher. That doesn't mean that your teacher comes from Paris, but it means a teacher of the French language. Or we say tuna fisherman. This is not a tuna who gets a rod and reel <laughs> and goes out to catch fish. Um, or we sometimes have uh, make compound words like bookbinder. Um, so in Latin, the modifying noun, uh, like French teacher, is put in a genitive case. So the, I'm getting a little complicated here, aren't we? The, there are a lot of different ways in which this relationship can be expressed. For example, we say uh, in English, we use the word of, which is the, the commonest way of translating the genitive. We could say the, um, the love of money. That uh, in, in Latin, we call that an objective genitive. So that is one of the uses of the genitive. There's also, we can say what something is made of. For example, uh, a, uh, we would say a, a gold bar. Latin would tend to say a bar made of gold, a bar of gold. Also, uh, a, a, of uh, quantity, like three parts uh, water. And in, in Latin, you would tend to say three parts of water. And of course, we do have uh, it, <clears throat> possession as well. So there are many, many uses of the genitive case, but you shouldn't start off on the wrong foot by thinking that it is uh, simply a case of possession. John's book or uh, uh, Sally's horse, because although that's a very common usage, it's not the usage that really defines the case. And one of the things I'm, I've tried to make uh, somewhat uh, clear in the, in the course of these podcasts is that there is sort of a philosophy of, uh, of uh, the grammar. That is, these case forms uh, have, have, a, have, a, have a root meaning. And if you grasp that, then you'll easily understand the hundred rules that flow from the simple meaning. Stephen, when you were learning Latin, did uh, how did, did they teach the genitive first as possession, and then you throw in these other things, or how did you learn it? No, I that that's how it was first. I think, and again, I I think it's because that's the simplest approach. Especially, you know, probably the first time I learned the genitive case, I was, uh, you know, eleven or twelve years old, and so you start with something easy, you tell them it's possession, and then you have to go to the harder stuff. Yeah. It makes sense as a technique. For adults, it doesn't make so much sense. You know, one of the things about um, teaching a foreign language is that children and adults learn quite differently. Children learn by mimicking uh, uh, other people, and they don't understand what the rules are. They eventually learn that there are such rules, but they don't understand why they operate. They, but you can give a child you know, hundreds of, of words in a foreign language to memorize, and they'll do a very good job. 
A grown-up can't do that. After the age of about 20, it gets harder and harder and harder. And so we have to concentrate on learning the general rules that allow us to, uh, to, to, to understand a vast amount of material with relatively few almost uh, mathematical rules. And that's, that's partly what I'm trying to do here. So if you we go any... back to your, your original example, Dr. Fleming, if you say French teacher or teacher of French, in yes. English, that's just moving around, but there's no, obviously because English isn't inflected, there's no change to the word. The way, the order in English determines, you know, how we'll say it or determines the meaning of it um, exactly. in a certain way. Uh, but that's not how that works for the genitive case in Latin, is it? No, the genitive can come before or after, uh, just as adjectives can come before or after the word uh, they modify. There are certain tendencies, of course, uh, but uh, it, which I'm not going to go into now for certain classes of words. But but Latin is uh, very free in word order. But one of the one of the clear advantages is that uh, when we say uh, we have phrases like uh, love of God. Well, what does that mean? Is that the love that God has for us or the love that we have for him? We have a, a phrase like French teacher. In another context, it, could, it wouldn't be clear the relationship between the two nouns. Latin is a good deal clearer. That is, we can, we can see that uh, the French, <clears throat> French in Latin is not, is not an adjective. Because if you had, say, um, magister uh, gallicus or whatever, or uh, whatever we're going to say for, for French, or magister graecus, that would mean a, a Frenchman or a Greek who was a teacher, or a teacher who happened to be French or Greek. Whereas mm -hmm. a teacher of the, the Greek language or the, the French language or whatever, that's, that's, it's very explicit. This makes Latin an excellent language for science and philosophy, uh, and uh, it's a little harder to write beautiful poetry in Latin because of the, te the temptation to be so clear and specific. And poetry has to have a little bit of a murkiness to it for it to have effect. But uh, there's, of course, superb Latin poetry by poets who understood this and worked, worked with the language and understood its limitations. The, uh, I know this is this is heretical to say that Latin has any limitations, but every, every language, every language, English has a great ability to express power and emotion through some of its simple words, and, uh, and but it has uh, increasingly in English, it's very difficult to be clear and explicit and unambiguous. <clears throat> I should apologize for our uh, to our uh, listeners. My my voice is a little rocky today. I'm, I'm getting over one of those spring uh, viruses that seem to be uh, uh, ripping through the Midwest. All right, so there are many uses of the genitive case, some of them with adjectives, some of them with verbs, and uh, you, you can't learn them all in one hour or one day. But the main thing to get straight at this point is our basic notion that the genitive case is used when one noun limits or modifies or defines another. And there are uh, uh, many, many ways in which this can be done. In English, uh, three-fourths of the time, you can translate this relationship with the word of. Well, let's go on to verbs. 
we were talking uh, about the Lord's Prayer at the beginning, and a prayer is a way of asking for what something, and, and it's a way of sort of getting what you want. Again, Latin is very clear and effective in expressing uh, our attitude toward what we are saying. In English, it's a little fuzzy, but in Latin, we have three verbal moods. Now, this verbal mood is not how you feel, like happy or sad, uh, but as I'll talk a little bit later, uh, it, uh, a, 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 a simpler way of translating this would be a mode. That is a mode of looking at the action. The indicative mood, which is for making statements or asking questions of fact, the subjunctive mood, which is to, when we talk about things that aren't real but are merely possible or impossible or are the object of our emotions, something we fear, something we wonder about, something we ask ourselves. And so it's a little bit removed from reality. And the imperative mood, which is how we uh, give orders to people, sometimes politely, sometimes not so politely. I remember in my first year Latin book, way back between the Punic Wars, the, uh, there, there was a, uh, a wall painting they, they showed in which two people had been gambling, obviously, and one looked like uh, he had cheated the other, and he says, Exi, be gone, get out. And, uh, and it can be, the, the imperative can be quite rude. Greek also has something called the optative mood, and this is a mood used for expressing your desire. In Latin, uh, the, uh, this notion of the optative is, is uh, taken over by the subjunctive, and usually often the imperfect tense of the subjunctive. Now, there's a problem in English. How do, uh, when, we, when we come to the subjunctive mood, uh, our friend and colleague Andrei Novorazov insists that uh, Russian and Slavic languages are more honest because they have no subjunctive, and English increasingly has only a little bit uh, of uh, the subjunctive. Can you give me, Stephen, any example of uh, the, the subjunctive in, uh, in English? Well, I mean, I've, I I've been working you... with a young writer who keeps on saying things like, uh, I wish I was dead. Why is that I wish you were here. It's a beautiful day out in Paris today. Yes. Yes. Uh, so the uh, a statement beginning with a wish uh, is means you're wishing something that is right now not not true. Um, you know, there was an old Appalachian song. I wish I was an apple hanging on a tree. Well, unfortunately, it should be I wish I were an apple. But I'm beginning to wonder if anybody uh, in America understands this. But the point is that in English, we have almost completely lost it, and we have to do with words like uh, should and would and may and might, but increasingly Americans don't know how to uh, use those words correctly. I would say not one American writer in a thousand, including people writing for prestigious magazines, knows how to use <clears throat> shall and will. And therefore, when you read in the Bible, thou shalt not do this or that, people don't actually understand what it means. So, uh, 
We have Latin is clear, English not so clear. We can give instructions in Latin uh, by using either the imperative or the subjunctive. Uh, the imperative, of course, gives a command. The subjunctive expresses a wish or desire. But, you know, sometimes maybe you're in a position where maybe imperatives aren't a good idea. Um, it's not always, for example, a slave is not supposed to tell his master, uh, you know, give me, give me that money you promised. You know, this is, this is not the, the appropriate way for an, an inferior to dress his, a superior. And uh, <clears throat> one ancient Greek critic, in fact, criticized the first line of the Iliad, which is, sing, goddess, the wrath of Achilles. So, well, how dare you address a god, <laughs> in this case a muse, with the imperative? You should say, wouldst thou sing? <clears throat> now, in Latin, we can, uh, you can use imperatives uh, in 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 uh, when you're addressing uh, a superior person, but prohibitions, that is when you forbid somebody to do something, don't do this, don't do that, they do tend to be sound abrupt in Latin as they do a little bit in English. So in Latin, a negative imperative is replaced typically by a subjunctive. In other words, may you not do that. Often an imperfect, uh, a perfect subjunctive because as we'll uh, talk about later when we talk about the tenses, uh, the perfect tenses are for completed action, whereas a present tense is for an incompleted action. You can also use the, <clears throat> the verb forms noli and nolite, which means be, be unwilling to. Uh, anything to avoid saying, don't do it. Now, <clears throat> let's look at the paternoster. Much, the, the very... The very nature of the uh, prayer means it's a series of requests. The, the, first, requ the, the first request or desire is, uh, thy kingdom come. I, I'm sorry, hallowed be thy name. Sanctificator uh, nomen tuum. And there's, a, there's three of them in a row. And they're all in the subjunctive. Sanctificator, veniat, fiat. This is preserved in English when we say, uh, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, I can't think of any, in 21st century English, would you ever say um, uh, any one of those sentences in any form in English? Could you say, uh, happy be thy children? Well, I mean, when you say that in English, it automatically feels more formal. Yeah. Yeah. So these are these are third persons. This is a third person singular, you know, because the subjects are are not I or you. So they they are these are called uh, in Latin they're called jussive subjunctives. Jussive meaning giving an order or an instruction. Uh, Thy kingdom come. Etc. It's interesting. I think we must have been con in American and English speakers must have been confused by this by a long for a long time because we have phrases like "I'm going to blow them all to kingdom come," <laughs> which suggests that the uh, that uh, the people who would say "Thy kingdom come" every day in church were not quite getting the point. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> now, um, 
I'll give you I'll give your your voice a moment to 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 recover, Doctor Fleming, and I I want to put to you the same uh, a reverse of what you'd said before about some grammars going nominative accusative, and and then discussing how do teachers describe the genitive. In the same way, I feel as first and second year Latin students, you're taught the indicative and the imperative absolutely first. In fact, I feel like you're taught the imperative in maybe your third week of Latin. But the subjunctive, yeah. we really keep back there because it's this scary uh, extra, you know, you, you get to the subjunctive later because you've got to do all this. I, I feel like the easy stuff first, be, but, but I guess the fulcrum is the subjunctive opens up all these other doors for you in Latin. So I wonder if it was, again, the same thing as you were saying, if you're teaching younger children, they may have this we'll teach you the indicative and the imperative because it's easy and we can do some tricks and I can say, you know, Conte, Marte, uh, and, and then go to the subjunctive. And does that matter for you if you're teaching adults? Um, what I think, uh, well, first of all, you, you, it's a very important question. Uh, secondly, uh, I'm not sure that the, in, in this case, the traditional method has really served children that well, unless we're talking about six, seven, eight years old, because uh, it gives a false sense about the language. You know, it's a strange, be a strange language where you could make statements or ask questions, but never express, make a request. <laughs> you could never, you could never, um, you know, give an order. You could never express fear, and it. I think it creates a kind of fear and, and dread of the subjunctive. In the old, uh, like um, uh, when I was a Latin teacher, one of the one of the common methods was <clears throat> first year Latin. You went through everything but the subjunctive, and in second year Latin in high school, say or junior high school, you start the subjunctive in the first term after a review. But this this makes it seem as if the subjunctive is something that maybe we just rather avoid if we can. Uh, it also explains why. Uh, why uh, Latin students love the verb iubeo iubere, because it means to order, but it takes an accusative infinitive construction as opposed to all other words uh, giving instructions, uh, well, not all other words, but most other words, like impero imperare. So I, I think it's, um, I don't know, it, 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 uh, the earl, I think a little, an earlier introduction to the subjunctive is a good idea, and secondly, you know, the subjunctive, the present subjunctive uh, is formed on the same stem as the, as the present indicative and the present imperative. So treating them together rather quickly, I think, would be a good idea. And, uh, You're right. I, 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 you know, as, as you describe it, I remember that big buildup, and, and I think it's, it's not such a great idea. It can make it very intimidating. Well, second and third year Latin students would just say, you think you're doing well now? Wait till you hit the subjunctive. Then you'll be sorry. (laughs) Partly, you know, uh, one of the funny things is if you speak Italian or French, especially Italian more so than French, in Italian, you have to use, if you're going to read a daily newspaper, you have to know four tenses of the subjunctive. And the (laughs) rules are almost identical to Latin. And so as a result, somebody who knows Latin whips through Italian more easily than uh, a not well-educated Italian who has some trouble with subjunctive rules. But, uh, but, you know, an American has enormous trouble because we don't 
we're so unclear in our own mind that I think we're fond of confusing fact with wish because we can't distinguish it in the in, in it's not part of our language to make that distinction. We can make that distinction. We can say, well, I may be able to come, but it's not built into the language, and so there's a whole lot of fuzziness. Uh, way back when, when the uh, the standard uh, the the traditional translations of the Bible were being done, there still was there was there were two trans uh, two tenses of the subjunctive, present and uh, past. But now um, I think all we have is if I were you, you could say if a man be wise. But um, that you don't hear it. It's not. It's not alive in the language uh, at all. And with other verbs, if you use the subjunctive correctly, I have found proofreaders and copy editors who, when I do that, they correct me. I, uh, correct in quotation marks. <laughs> okay, so we have um, we have in the in the Lord's Prayer, we have finally the, we have a negative uh, in we have a negative uh, injunction et ne nos inducas. And lead us not into temptation. Maybe, notice it's it's more it's more polite to say instead of saying don't do it. In uh, it's and may you not do it. It's a it's a it's a quite proper use of the subjunctive. I used to uh, wonder if this was uh, correct because it would see because normally uh, you use the perfect subjunctive for these negative statements. But here we're asking for this. This is an ongoing process. That is, please, if you were Irish, you'd see, and don't be leading us into temptation. And it has it has that progressive feeling on and you know uh, on and on and on. We we want that never to happen. And of course, if uh, if we were to be led into temptation, we'd be in the position of our Lord in the wilderness, being offered things we probably will not have the strength to refuse, will be tested, and we will fail the test. Adam was tested, and he failed the test. Who is the only character in the Old Testament who passed the test? Job. Yes, Job. Between Adam and Jesus, there's only one person. And uh, which, tri- which Jewish tribe did Job belong to? Uh... This is called a trick question. He's not a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> See, one of the things, amazing things. This is a digression, I know, but one of the amazing things about uh, prophetic Judaism, the the the, uh, the the books of the various books of the prophets, uh, is that they 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 so clearly anticipate the 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 ministry of Christ. That is teaching their fellow Jews that you know we're not the only people in the universe. We're not the only people that God can love and want to save. And they're not the only people who are capable of being just. And so, you know, it begins, once there was a man of us, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's, once upon a, it's a once upon a time story in, in, in that sense. But, deli- but it's, it's no accident that Job, the most righteous person in the Old Testament, that perhaps the only righteous person in the Old Testament, uh, is, is deliberately not a Jew. And you have the same thing in the book of Jonah, where Jonah says, I don't want to save those Assyrians in Nineveh. I, you know, I want them all to go to hell. And he's angry. He's angry with the God for sending him uh, to save people he doesn't like. And again, the, 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 this is a book 
designed to teach the Jews that that, that uh, and there's several in the uh, in the Old Testament that were all human too, and this very much anticipates uh, uh, the, the the ministry of Jesus. Talk about getting a little far afield. The one uh, the one positive uh, there's a good positive prayer, and that's in the uh, in the Lord's Prayer, and of course Don Don Nobi, uh, there too. Uh, uh, Give us of this day our daily bread, da, da nobis, <clears throat> panem nostrum, etc., etc., and libera nos amalo, free us from evil. What is the, <coughs> excuse me again, what is the evil that we want to be freed from, Stephen? Cancer? Our, our, war? our own sin? Is it, here's a, it's a Latin question. What is the, what is, what is the case uh, of, uh, I'm sorry, what is the gender of malo? Uh, malo, malo's, malum is, is neuter. It, it could be neuter or it could be masculine. So which is it? The general assumption today is that it's neuter. The general assumption that in the Middle Ages and in the in antiquity is that it is masculine. And okay. what, why is this significant? If it's if it's evil, then what? If it's the yeah, evil, it's, who so is the saying, evil one? The difference between evil broadly versus evil him, the devil. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's not. Don't deli- it's, We're not asking. We're not asking to deliver us from misfortune. From the you know the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and in Greek, by the way, it's it's crystal clear. The word is hoponeros, the the wicked one. It's a, it's an active, the malicious one, and the we know who the malicious one. You see, the enemy of mankind, and so. You see how clear the, the, this text is if you start unpeeling it, unpacking it. Uh, lead us not to temptation. Well, who, who is the tempter? Who is the slanderer, the diabolos, the devil? So don't, don't, make a, don't subject us to this experience that our Lord had to go through in the wilderness, but deliver us from the evil one, but deliver us from the... In, uh, in uh, the old church Slavonic, it's the Rukovag, the 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 wily one, because that's their word. That's one of their uh, words for uh, for the devil. Um, opinion is divided on this. I would say it's eighty percent probable that we're dealing with the masculine. And by the way, when in doubt, masculine takes precedence. If you're, uh, but that's a, a gr- sort of grammatical question. But here, I, I think there's no doubt that it's deliver us from the evil one, <clears throat> and. I think that obviously the, the conventional understanding that it's neuter and therefore it's just evil things. But then, what does that mean? And I think most people think we I don't don't let my child be run over by a car, you know. Don't don't uh, don't let me underpay my taxes or whatever. <laughs> but uh, it, it that we're in a we don't perhaps feel comfortable with the idea that we're locked in a in a conflict with an with an angel who has only a dark side. Hmm. Every well, word I mean, of the a, Lord... It's a completely different sense uh, in this, uh, the way that you're deconstructing it, Dr. Fleming. If, if you're saying it in the Greek, you're praying this prayer in the Greek, yeah. and, and then you talk about there's a sort of uh, change in the, in the Latin, and then we get to English, and it's, it's, even, it's, it's so far afield from the Greek, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now the and Latin. I think the Latin was. Me- I think the Latin was meant to uh, be uh, uh, masculine. 
I think it was intended to be masculine. But uh, that it's but it's an, it's ambiguous because Latin doesn't have a um, uh, uh, doesn't have my gosh uh, a word for the. So in Greek, it's uh, it, we'd have the same problem if they if they didn't have a definite article in Greek. But since Greek does have it, it's uh, it's uh, well actually the same problem exists with uh, with that in Greek. Come to think of it, but um, the the. The word poneros is almost always used. I, I, I once did the tedious exercise of looking it up with a concordance. It is almost always used of a person rather than a thing. And, a, and in the New Testament, the pers- it is a, a majority of times it's used of the devil himself. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think there's not a whole lot of doubt. And... It's it's not as if asking to be delivered from evil is is incorrect, but we are asking to be delivered from the age the primary agent of evil in our world, and it it puts it it's pretty stark it's pretty frightening and in fact the whole the the whole last two sentences are uh, are pretty terrifying don't don't put us to the test that we know we're going to fail because we're not able to pass and don't and don't let the testor the tempter, don't let him, the evil one, may we be spared being put to the test by him. Deliver us, make free us, set us free from this evil being. It's, um, this is, it's, it's, it's not so much a, a Sunday school platitude as um, some people would seem to think. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> must, be the, must be the virus, uh, Turning me to thoughts of mortality. <laughs> well, we're uh, we're running out of time. Let's um, let's talk. Our last section. Our last section is uh, on uh, Latin words in English, Latinate English, and and uh, and how we can sometimes correct or our our usage or maybe understand English a little better. And I, I said earlier we would talk about. M- mood, you know, mood is modus. That is, it is the mode or manner. It's how things happen, and so we have we have verbal verbal moods, or are uh, simply uh, mo- modes of making statements, whether they're uh, statements of fact, statements of possibility, or uh, statements of fear, etc. And so it's it's interesting. We haven't. We have a a, a parallel word, uh, modo, uh, an adverb in Latin which means uh, just now or right away, and we have I think a very funny word in English, modern. Modern is uh, uh, which which comes from modo, and originally it just meant that which was that which was coming into fashion at the time, and so to be modern, <laughs> to be modern. To be is to is to be is constantly trying to be up to date without any reference to what is good or bad, and uh, and so if we live in modern times and we're proud, or more recently we live in postmodern times, we're proud to think of ourselves as modern. It's very funny. All it just all it means is always running to be up to date with whatever is the latest fad and ignoring what might be something deeper and truer. And I think uh, (laughs) 
it's or, alas the way the way we live now, Dakota. Or, or in your neck of the woods, Doctor Fleming, mode is that which is topped by ice cream. Yes, right? that's true. <laughs> As in Allah. <laughs> the, um, um, sorry, go ahead. Okay, we have uh, just just these are all trivial things. Um, talking about the word, we, we're, verbs show mood, tense, voice, person, and number. And the tense, of course, people wonder what does that come from? Well, it comes just from the Latin word for time. Uh, it has nothing to do with tension. Or uh, or being tense, which is uh, from a different uh, from a different Latin word. Finally, finally for this um, uh, earlier, I talked about the the need to parse sentences when you are uh, studying a passage very carefully. Now we know from the presidency of Bill Clinton that he was said to have parsed his words carefully. And apparently what this means is for the newsmakers and news commentators, parse for them means to use words in a careful way so as to snooker the public. You know, when he said, you know, remember uh, Clinton's famous statement, uh, uh, it depends on the meaning of the word is, about whether he had a particular relationship with a particular young woman. And um, this has nothing to do with the word parse. The word parse comes from uh, parse orationis, part of speech. And a, a schoolboy in the Middle Ages would be asked to parse, that is, you would go through a passage like the uh, of, uh, of Latin, like, for example, the Lord's Prayer, and you would say uh, pater noster, okay, pater, noun, masculine, vocative, and then you'd say vocative because a form uh, because it's addressed. Uh, noster are the same thing. A uh, qui, personal uh, a relative pronoun, masculine singular, nominative case, subject of sentence. That's what parsing is. Not parsing is not lying and misleading people. And uh, this would be a good word that we could if we could encourage people to start using correctly if you're going to use it metaphorically it would mean to be uh to 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 pay close attention to grammatical form and to be explaining grammatical form but not to be misleading people by quibbling on words uh so it's 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 not a clintonian word hmm. you sound dubious no i i, I... I was just thinking of the, the, the description of it as a Clintonian word. <laughs> <laughs> well, alas, we may be having to we may be put having to put up with many many with eight years of Clintonian language if uh, things. <laughs> Fortunately, will, I will. Be, when I think of Clintonian things, uh, Dr. Fleming, I think of of lies and obfuscation, exaggeration, those sorts of things. I feel like Clintonian has so many shades of meaning. It's like logos in Greek. You know, what do you yes. really mean when you say logos? What do you mean when you say Clintonian? Uh, so many shades of meaning. Here's a question for you. In the, in the low Sunday traditional re, uh, mass, the, uh, it, it, uh, the, um, the introit, I, I, I think it's the introit, uh, quotes 
from First uh, Peter chapter two, and uh, where Peter says, uh, you know, just like children who seek, you know, who who want rational milk. I, I forget what it is. Gal What 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 is rational milk? Um, it, it's it's the right right thinking doctrine, right? <laughs> Uh, yes, but I'm being, I'm being, well, first of all, I'm being foolish, but I mean, but <laughs> it is still, these things, you know, frankly, sermons don't always inspire me in church. It's a terrible thing to say. And so, but I figure I can get away with, if I have a, if I have the New Testament in Greek and Latin, uh, I can, I can ponder the, the, the precise meaning of the words. And obviously the Greek word is uh, logikos. For, for rational. Mm-hmm. And um, logikos, of course, means li- one of the things it means. Well, it means literally pertaining to the logos. So I, I, I don't have the answer to this. I mean, I, know, I mean, there are official theological answers, but it seems, it's a, you know, Peter's language is normally pretty p- straightforward. But uh, the, the children, of course, children eagerly need milk. and But we need... And what he's done is conflate things. We need, they seek milk, and we need, we need the, but w- with the same enthusiasm, we need to seek the milk which feeds us on the logos, which is, of course, true doctrine, but it's also the, not just the teachings, but the being of Jesus Christ, it would seem to me. The second, it allows us to participate in a world formed by the second person of the Trinity. This is, um. this, this would be completely off the wall, but that's, that's what, uh, Year after year, I look at this same passage and, and uh, puzzle over it. But that must be – it must have something there to do with, I would think. Well, and it's interesting. You, 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 know, you, pick, uh, you pick from that Sunday. That Sunday itself has so many names to refer to it. So it's Low Sunday. It's Quasimodo yes. Sunday. It's Dominica and Albis. I mean, it's, it's yes. got a lot of different – so maybe that's part of the shades there as and well. Dominica and Albis, it, what, De Ponendis, because it's when you – you, it's when you put off the white garment uh, for the uh, the uh, the, uh, the people who've not just been uh, baptized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, yes, and uh, each one of these names is a different way of getting at the meaning of the day. And um, the, the nice thing about old traditions, you know, is they 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 uh, they get they get. They get layer after layer after layer. It's sort of like a glacier going down uh, down a mountain. My old friend Thomas Molnar, who is a great Hungarian uh, Catholic thinker, Molnar once wrote for me an, an essay, um, actually condemning art restoration in principle. Not that he didn't want paintings ever to be cleared up or the buildings to be scraped, but he said, you know, really they get so carried away as if. Their goal is to take, uh, you know, a painting from uh, Duccio and restore it to what it looked like in Duccio's days. Well, first of all, this is impossible because we don't know. Because you, if you take it one millimeter farther than Duccio, you're removing, and which I think happens over and over and over in art restoration. You go a little too far, and the colors now become a little too bright because it would have been muted in the final uh, final finish. But second of all, we can't go back to the 15th century or the 14th century, and things have a significance through time. 
And yes, of course, dirt and and, and discolored varnish uh, can be ugly, and and there has to be some some reason. But to restore a church, for example, and get rid of everything that's been added over a thousand years, well, what you do is you take away everything that's been added. But in the process of adding, you know, they also took they destroyed a lot. And so what you're left with is some kind of bare barn of a church because you, you, you can't restore it to what it was. You can only take away what's been added. And if you look at uh, what happened during the Calvinist Reformation in Switzerland, you go into these magnificent medieval cathedrals like in Zurich, and it's like a prison. I mean, it's uh, gray walls. There's nothing on it. So the desire, and in fact, I think, I don't, again, I'm waxing much too uh, philosophical because of the, the virus today, but I do think it is a mistake to think that you, you can go back to the golden age. You can, we can't, to, or to quote a pop song from the, uh, about 1970, uh, what is the line? We've got to get back to the garden. We can't get back to the garden. We have to lead, live in the world we've been put into. We can't restore the Roman Republic. We can't restore the American Republic. We can't restore the age of the apostles or the church of the apostles. And even if we could, it would be wrong to try because that was the, church, that was the infancy of the church, and there's all, there are other periods. There's the maturity of the church in the, in the Middle Ages. So I, I do think that this, this rage to simplify, to clean up, to purify is, uh, is a mistake. Well, I, I guess I, I would uh, – I know we're, we're getting a little bit of far afield from Latin, but since it's, it's dealing Just with a the classical subject, and this is the Fleming Foundation, and we're always interested in, in looking at the bigger picture, I do want to go down this road a little bit with you, Dr. Fleming, because I'm thinking in terms of the restoration of the Sistine Chapel – because, you know, I've only ever seen it restored. I, I never went beforehand. So you can yeah. maybe give us some perspective on, on how that was different for you versus – or um, Saint-Chapelle here in Paris has been recently uh, restored, as has the interior court of honor at Les Invalides. And it just yeah. – uh, and Chartres is being redone uh, – redone. it's being cleaned. And there's a lot of people who are really upset about this, like, oh, you know, Chartres is being vacuumed and they hate it. But there's so it's just so bright, and when you look at it, it's so it's so striking. Uh, and I obviously the dirt of centuries gives it this great character as well. But um, can, do you want to talk about it in that? Because I'm that's what I think of when I think of restoration. I don't think yeah, of the there are that look the, yeah a lot I, of the statues you've ever shown to me were originally painted, and I have yes. no way of under I can't even look at that statue that you're pointing at. And I try to color it in with paint, and it doesn't yeah. even make sense to me because we're so far removed from the golden age that we don't uh, we don't know yeah. how to look at that that way. And uh, and and I, I think it would probably be a grave mistake because there look there are certain things that we can do and things we can't do. So let's first we there are <clears throat> if we're talking about a two hundred year old church that needs to be cleaned up and repainted and the bricks repointed and some of the some of the stained glass fixed up and uh, various things like that. That's obviously a legitimate, normal, and necessary task. Uh, then there are things that you know. For example, the Church of Santo Stefano Rotondo in uh, in Rome. It's it's a lovely place, 
they have <laughs> they virtually gutted it. But you know, it had really fallen on hard times. It's a it's a circular church. It's a, it's which is very rare in uh, in Western Christendom. But you and so they have done a really but it was in rotten shape. And what they've tried, what they're trying to do, and I think they're not going to succeed. What they've tried to do is to bring it back to something like what it would have been in the its first thousand years of existence, or first five hundred years. And and when I visited it in the old days, it was it was really uh, sort of crummy. But but when you but on at the other end of the extreme, there is, for example, the restoration. Of the uh, of the of the Cinacolo, of Da Vinci's Last Supper, um, uh, as a friend of mine said, when it was an Italian scholar um, in uh, who was a professor at the University of Genova, she said, "Well, why don't you go look at it?" She said, "Of course, you won't see it. Nobody will ever see Da Vinci's painting again, because the restorers have destroyed it irreparably." And they had something like, I forget how many, four, five, six, seven different restoration techniques, all of them much too extreme, going down much too far, using different techniques, and so the different sections of the painting they worked on, not each one is bad, and they clash with each other. Now, this was because they wanted to give us the painting as delivered by da Vinci. You can't do that. And they don't know what it would have looked like exactly. But in their arrogance, the restorers destroyed it beyond any hope, any possible hope of of true restoration. I don't know where that phrase true restoration came into my head. (laughs) True restoration means that you go ad fontes, you go back to the sources for inspiration, and you try to restore the purity of those sources. But you, on the other hand, do not reject the valuable parts of uh, tradition. So uh, in, in Rome, I get real sick of, tra- of very ancient, beautiful churches that, that some idiot in the 17th and 18th century turned into a Baroque church. I'm in favor of stripping out a good deal of the Baroque in those places. The trouble is they strip out the Baroque, and then they leave it bare. Now, a better, a better example, where something like uh, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, you know, it's basically a Romanesque church, but it's got Gothic touches in the, win- in the window shapes, and it's got Baroque touches everywhere. But every, like there and uh, you know, to, a, to a, almost to the same extent, Santa Maria Maggiore, much more gorgeous church. But in these churches, the different traditions and different periods of the church have been preserved and, uh, and kept in some kind of harmony. And I, uh, I find a great pleasure in them. I'm not a lover of the Baroque, but if, as long as you don't overdo it. But if you, try, if you, if you have this rage, which is, which is Jacobin, this is what the French Jacobins wanted to do. They wanted to go back to the Roman Republic or even to ancient Sparta and to wipe out everything that had come on in between. And when you have that kind of rage to restore, it really bec- it's very much like the Calvinist rage to destroy. And uh, obviously Molnar never took a moderate position on anything, and so Thomas was uh, being uh, perhaps a little bit uh, fanciful in his argument. But he was getting at this. He was get not. He wasn't opposed to cleaning things up and 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 putting them in better condition. But it's this. 
but uh, Thomas was something of an anti-Protestant, to put it mildly, and he, he, um, I think he saw all of these as part as part of a kind of radical re- reformational goal to restore primitive simplicity, whereas it's it's a impossible and and not really a legitimate desire. Well, and I'm sure our listeners are glad that your voice made a recovery just in time for the end of the episode. <laughs> ah, thank you. <laughs> I think we, uh, we I think we shall have to close on this, though. We've gone on for over an hour. Well, as always, Dr. Fleming, thanks so much for your time. And we want to remind our listeners that Latin is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Please contact us. Uh, you can write to Dr. Fleming directly, Thomas at Fleming.Foundation. If you'd like to use some of our material or talk about uh, with Dr. Fleming in constructive ways, we can use the material for things that you may be pursuing. And we'll be back next month for another episode. Thanks again to our gold and charter uh, members who produce this content, and we produce it for you, and we're, we're very grateful for your support as always. <laughs>